Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to today's uh, virtual mosque event. Ramadan Mubarak. I hope everyone is taking advantage of this blessed month and that everyone's healthy and safe during this pandemic. My name is Abdurrahman Haresha. I'm a high school student currently in grade 12 that wants the best for the Manitoba Muslim community as this event is to the youth, from the youth. I'm happy to be the MC throughout this virtual mosque event, inshallah. Another familiar face on my uh, right, sorry, on my light, on my right is Nuruddin Al-Bakri. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Assalamu alaikum. Uh, my name is Nuruddin Al-Bakri. I'm a good talk student as well. Uh, I'm going to be co-hosting alongside Abdurrahman, and I'll be taking care of the questions and the conclusion segment uh, after the guest speaker. So inshallah, if you have any questions, uh, please leave them down below in the comments and uh, We'll, we'll get it uh, when we when we come to the question segment, inshallah. Jazakallah <clears throat> khair. So the title of today's uh, virtual mosque event is uh, It's Okay Not To Be Okay. Uh, navigating through mental health with the help of prophetic experiences with our guest speaker, Dr. Khalid Hamoud. But before we begin our program, we will start with the Quran and translation. The Quran recitation will be from Iftan Mukhtar. She is 17 years old and is currently enrolled in her last year of high school, uh, being part of the graduating class of 2021. MashaAllah, Afnan is very active in the Manitoba youth Muslim community. And um, so, <laughs> and the floor is yours. Take it away, Afnan. واذكر في الكتاب مريم إذ انتبذت من أهلها مكانا شرقيا فاتخذت من دونهم حجابا فأرسلنا إليها روحنا فتمثل لها بشرا سويا قالت إني أعوذ بالرحمن منك إن كنت تقيا قال إنما أنا رسول ربك لأهب لك غلاما زكيا قالت أنا يكون لي غلام ولم يمسسني بشر ولم أك بغيا قال كذلك قال ربك وعلي هين وَلِنَجْعَلَهُ آيَةً لِلنَّاسِ وَرَحْمَةً مِنَّا وَكَانَ أَمْرًا مَقْضِيًّا 
فحملته فانتبذت به مكانا قصيا فأجاءها المخاض إلى جذع النخلة قالت يا ليتني قالت يا ليتني مت قبل هذا وكنت نسيا منسيا فناداها من تحتها ألا تحزني قد جعل ربك تحتك سريا وهزي إليك بجذع النخلة تساقط تساقط عليك رطبا جنيا صدق الله العظيم Mention in the Quran the story of Mary. She withdrew from her family to a place to the east and secluded herself away. We sent our spirit to appear before her in the form of a, of a perfected man. She said, I seek the Lord of mercy's protection against you. If you have any fear of him, do not approach. But he said, I am but a messenger from your Lord, come to announce to you the gift of a pure son. She said, how can I have a son when no man has touched me? I have not been unchaste. And he said, this is what your Lord said. It is easy for me. We shall make him a sign to all people, a blessing from us. And so it was ordained. She conceived him. She withdrew to a distant place. And when she, when, when the pains of childbirth drove her to cling to the trunk of a palm tree, she exclaimed, I wish I had been dead and forgotten long before all this. But a voice cried to her from below, do not worry, your Lord has provided a stream at your feet. MashaAllah, uh, What better way to start an event but with the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. <clears throat> so be, be, uh, before we begin the event one last time, I know you guys are all eager to hear what Dr. Khada is going to say about mental health, but we have a few upcoming uh, events I would like to announce. Uh, the first one being the Avengers of Earth Day. Um, on Sunday, April 25th, from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. at the Waverly Grand Mosque, I want to emphasize that this is like a youth program. Uh, so it's the age groups from 14 to 19. Uh, this event uh, will consist of walking around the Grand Mosque area, picking up garbage, helping out the earth that we live on. Uh, be sure to wear blue and or green and all COVID protocols such as wearing masks and uh, social distancing still matter, although the event is outside. Uh, the second event uh, being not entirely for the youth, but like more for the general audience is another virtual mosque event just like this one. It's called Islam Identity and the Future. Uh, it's going to also be on the Sunday, April 25th at 3 p.m. Uh, Masha'Allah, we're uh, we were blessed and uh, able to get uh, Imam Suhaib Webb as the, uh, as the guest speaker for the upcoming event, and we encourage you all to attend. So without further ado, we're going to start this event. <clears throat> uh, our speaker is a neuroradiologist who attended uh, medical school at the U of M, but not University of Manitoba, uh, but the University of Michigan. He completed residency and fellowship training 
and his profession uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. He currently is working and residing with his family of three in the city he was born and raised in, Linton, Michigan. So what makes him relevant to this topic? It was his defining experiences, uh, defining experiences when he served as a youth uh, coordinator in the Islamic Society of East Lansing. He spent many years working hand to hand with the youth in his community, leading lectures, uh, seminars with the emphasis on wellness. Here to discuss about mental health, please welcome Dr. Khaled Hamoud. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Are you staying uh, with Rahman or? Uh, once again, I just want to thank you, Zakallah uh, Khairan and Dr. Khaled, taking time out of your day for this event, and uh, the floor is yours. Well, yakum. You first of all, amazing job, Abdul Rahman, uh, Nuruddin, and Afnan, all with the intro and the Quran. Mashallah, you guys are doing an amazing job, and uh, Mashallah, the whole uh, Manitoba community, Mashallah, is doing an amazing job. It seems. Uh, first of all, Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim. Wassalatu wassalamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallim. اللهم انفعنا بما علمتنا وعلمنا ما ينفعنا وزدنا علما إنك أنت العليم الحكيم جزاكم الله خيرا to you and your community for inviting me today it's an honor uh, to be here amongst you uh, for you to, to to listen to what I have to say inshallah I want to clarify that the doctor before my name I'm not uh, a psychiatrist or uh, uh, any mental health expert for that matter uh, again I studied neuroradiology but most of what I have to say to you today is informed, as Abdurrahman said, by my previous work with the youth uh, in this community, in my community here in Flint, Michigan, and, and other communities in the area. So, inshallah, today, I also, I know it's Ramadan, and the human attention span is really not that long, so I don't really plan on going too long, inshallah. I know I was told, uh, you know, 45 minutes, but maybe a little bit less than that, inshallah. And again, if you have any questions, please post them in the comment section, because that's also a very important part of this talk. And this topic is something that is very near and dear to my heart. I think it's it's pretty much near and dear to everybody who's listening, right? Because the topic of, I think even mental health is too restricting of a term to use. But this topic in general, it it's anybody who's listening, it's touched them in one way or another, whether it's themselves or a family member, you know, so at some point in our lives, whether it's Again, on a personal level, on a community level, you know, it's it's touched us. It means something to each and every single one of us. And so our Islamic history is so rich with examples. And the Quran, God's words are so rich with suggestions and coping mechanisms. But oftentimes this topic is so taboo in our communities. And, you know, it's something that people like to kind of brush under the rug that we don't end up addressing it. And that's very, very detrimental. And so inshallah, I hope today in the brief time that we have that, I mean, it's not going to be an exhaustive, exhaustive discussion on mental health, but at least we can kind of, you know, get a bird's eye view of what it means, how the Prophet ﷺ dealt with these issues. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala discusses these issues, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? What does God say about these issues? And so this topic of it's okay not to be okay. I'm going to keep saying this and referring to this because it's a very good way of summarizing what we're talking about. It's okay not to be okay. And the first story I want to talk about is the story of Abu Hudayfa. Abu Hudayfa radiallahu anh, was a very noble companion. All of the Prophet's companions, obviously, and his friends were all you know, amazing people. And we hear these amazing stories about them. 
Abu Hudayfa was no exception. He was an amazing human being. He was, you know, very loyal to the Prophet Sallallahu You know, from what we can tell, uh, obviously only Allah knows best, but an amazing Muslim, mashallah. So Abu Hudayfa radiallahu an, when it came time after they, the Muslims migrated from Mecca to Medina. So in the middle of, you know, revelation, when things got very hard in Mecca, the Prophet and his companions uh, under the command of God, of course, moved to Medina. After they moved to Medina, it was about two years later, one of the first major battles in uh, the religion happened by the name of Badr. This was about two years in. So the battle of Badr is occurring. And, you know, just to give you the context to kind of paint a picture of what was happening, the Muslims had basically left town, left Mecca. They left in such a hurry that they really didn't, you know, they didn't know how long they were going to be in Medina. They didn't, so they didn't really pack all of, they left a lot of their stuff, you call it, in Mecca. So the Quraysh and the leader of which was Abu Sufyan at the time, went and took essentially the Muslim stuff and was trading with it. So the Prophet and the Muslim community heard about this and they went out basically just to intercept, you know, the caravan and just be like, hey, this is our stuff. You know, you guys can't, they even, they, there was no intention of fighting, right? They went out just to get their stuff back, essentially. But long story short, it ends up turning into a battle, one of the major battles of Islam. Of Islam, you know, 1,000 uh, non-Muslims on one side and 300-odd Muslims on the other side. And there was this tradition uh, in Arabia at the time that before the battle, they would have this thing called the Mubarazah, so where it was like a face-off. So typically, three people from one side would... You know, if you ever watched, you know, the movie Troy or any of these old like uh, movies where they, they it wasn't just in the Arabian Peninsula, but a lot of the battles, uh, you know, back in the day, they would have these one on one battles before the major battle would happen. So in this battle, the battle of Badr, uh, there was, you know, the same thing happened. They had three people from the Muslim side, three people from the non-Muslim side. And Abu Hudayfa, he was a Muslim. OK, but his father, his uncle and his brother were not Muslim. And, you know, divine will would have it that his father, his uncle, and his brother would be from the three people from the non-Muslim side who would engage in these one-on-one -on -one battles. So they fought in these battles, and his father and his uncle and his brother, all three of them were killed. And before the official start of the battle, the Prophet ﷺ looked at the Muslims and he told them, there is a certain group, a certain list of people. I know they're from the Quraysh. I know they're non-Muslims. I know they're fighting you. But if you see these people in the battlefield, don't kill them. And amongst these people was the uncle of the Prophet Al-Abbas. And Allah knows best, but maybe these were people the Prophet ﷺ knew they had accepted Islam or wanted to accept Islam, but for whatever reason, you know, they couldn't really emphasize, you know, their Islam or, 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 or publicize their Islam. And so the Prophet ﷺ said, these people, just, just trust me on this one. Just leave them alone. And again, amongst them was Al-Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ. So Abu Hudayfa hears this. And, and mind you, this is Abu Hudayfa, right? This, we're not talking about Joe Shmo. This is Abu Hudayfa, this is a, a very famous, very noble companion, played a pivotal role in Islamic history. He hears what the Prophet says, and he just, he can't, he can't handle it. He says, he says, and he says this out loud, is the uncle of the Prophet, is the uncle of the Prophet 
going to be saved while our fathers, our uncles, and our brothers are killed? I swear, if I see Al-Abbas, if I see the uncle of the Prophet who the Prophet said explicitly not to hurt and kill, if I see him in the battlefield, I'm going to kill him. If I see him in the battlefield, I'm going to take it upon myself. I'm going to make it a personal mission that I'm going to hurt and kill the uncle of the Prophet And this, again, was a companion, right? And no doubt this was a huge mistake. And the list goes on and on and on. When we think about the Battle of Uhud, and the Prophet ﷺ told some of his companions to stand on the mountain and, and wait. Even if you see that the battle is done and, we, and we've won, don't leave the mountain. But they explicitly disobey the order of the Prophet ﷺ. We see Hassan ibn Thabit, who was the poet of the Prophet ﷺ, who slandered the wife of the Prophet ﷺ. We see Abu Dharr, Abu Dharr. You talk about amazing companions. Abu Dharr, calling Bilal essentially what is today's equivalent of the N-word. Just a very racist term, a very derogatory term. In the example, in the examples, just they go on and on of companions. Yes, companions committing these kinds of mistakes. Not little mistakes either, right? They, they cost battles. They cost lives. These mistakes ruin relationships. But despite, despite all of this, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say about them? What does God say about these people in the Quran despite all of this? He says, Verily you, this generation, this generation that we just talked about, you were the best generation ever to come forth for mankind. There is nobody better than you. And despite all of this, the Prophet ﷺ said, that the best of people are my people. The best of my generation is this generation. It's the generation of Abu Dharr, of Hassan ibn Thabit, of Abu Hudayfa. And we're left to wonder how. How is this possible? Were they perfect? And the answer simply is yes. Yes, they were perfect, but they were not perfect in their actions. They were perfect in their resilience. They were perfect in their repentance. They were not perfect in the sense that they were mistake-free, but they were perfect in their reactions to their mistakes. Abu Hudayfah when he said what he said in the battle of Badr and the Prophet ﷺ caught wind of this, he said ﷺ, is the neck of the Prophet ﷺ's uncle going to be hurt while I clearly forbade it? Amr al-Khattab, another great companion of the Prophet ﷺ, heard the Prophet ﷺ say this and he said, let me just deal with Abu Hudayfa, let me rough him up. This is unacceptable, it's unbelievable. Prophet ﷺ said, you know, chill out, calm down, go talk to your brother. And so he talked to Abu Hudayfa and Abu Hudayfa, look at his reaction. You know, if somebody else realizes they made this big of a mistake, Sometimes, and unfortunately, our natural inclination is just say, I'm doomed. That's it. There's no recovering from this. Abu Hudayfa says, yeah, I don't know. I was just, 
I got lost in my emotions. I was very emotional. I just watched essentially my my father and my uncle, my brother being killed. I was a very bad place. You know, inshallah, Allah will forgive me. And he went on to serve such a pivotal role in Islam. Abu Dhar, we talked about Abu Dhar and Bilal. After he said what he said to Bilal, radiallahu an, he said that I am not going to feel secure from these words, from calling you this derogatory racist term to Bilal of Rabah, who was an Abyssinian slave, he was black. I'm not going to feel safe until you put your beautiful black foot on my white face. And he put his face on the ground so Bilal could step on it. So they weren't, they weren't perfect in their actions. They made mistakes and they were big mistakes. They were big sins. But they saw their mistakes the way that Allah, the way that God wants us to see our mistakes. Not as something that destroys us. Not as something that defeats us. Not as something that overwhelms us. Not as something that when it happens, when we make a mistake, when we sin, we throw in the, in the, in the towel, we say, I did this thing and, and it's bad and there's, there's no recovering from it. How am I going to pray? How am I going to take my religion seriously? Who am I kidding? God knows how bad of a person I am. But they knew, as we should, with conviction, with conviction that mistakes are inevitable, that mistakes are 100% unavoidable. And because of this, they were compassionate with themselves. They didn't throw the towel. It's not about whether or not we will sin. It's not about whether or not we will fall down. We, we will fall down. It's in our inherent nature as human beings. We will fall down. That's just reality. We will make mistakes. It's about whether or not and how we get back up. Again, this, this, this is how we have to approach our mistakes. Because all too often we are almost, I don't want to say it, but I mean, it's, 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 I, you know, anecdotally think it's the truth. We are very not compassionate with ourselves. We hold ourselves, you know, to, to, such a high standard and we don't let ourselves accept the fact that we are human and we're going to make mistakes. We don't remember the words of the Prophet I said, look how profound this is. This is unbelievable. SubhanAllah. The Prophet wasallam said, and this hadith is just, if you, if you think about it and you just reflect upon it, it's honestly one of the most amazing and hopeful hadith that you could hear or think of. The Prophet wasallam says, and you may have heard this before, but if not, let me jog your memory. And look at how beautiful this language is, right? The Prophet says that every son of Adam, every son, every human being essentially is a is a person who makes mistakes perpetually. He didn't say Every son of Adam, you know, uh, makes mistakes, makes it seem like mistakes are a transient thing. But he said, The alif in khata makes it as if every human, it's almost like it's their job to make. If you know any Arabic, you know, when you say, you know, right? You put that alif in there, you're a pilot. You put that alif in there, you're a butcher. 
Okay, Prophet is saying, you and I, we are khata'ah. We are inherently going to sin perpetually on and on and on. And the best of people are not those who don't sin. Because that person doesn't exist. Prophet says, the best of people are those who are resilient, who ask Allah for forgiveness. They're not the people who are mistake-free. In fact, if you're mistake-free, you're not the best person. The person who make mis makes mistakes and is resilient and repents is better than you. Those people who make mistakes and deal with their mistakes in a healthy way. This, this is the approach we need to take. When we think about it being okay not to be okay. When we sin and we make a mistake, we want to give up and we want to throw in the towel. We want to say, how can Allah take me seriously? Who am I kidding? I'm doing this and I'm going to stand and pray. Then I'm going to stand and, and make dua. It, it doesn't even make sense. Allah is saying, it's okay. It's okay not to be okay. In fact, it's normal. It's human. It's okay to feel bad. It's okay to run. But make sure you are running in the right direction. Make sure you are running in the right direction. Allah literally says, run. But run towards me. Allah created us. He knows us. He programmed us to be imperfect. And so it's paramount that we understand this, to come to terms with ourselves regarding this and not hate ourselves for it. Our imperfections shouldn't hold us back. To err, to make mistakes is human. It's a fundal Islamic axiom. And one of the most cardinal things in our religion that we might have not been taught before because we're always taught and, you know, there's some truth to the other side that we should we always, you know, aim to be as good as we can, you know, worship Allah as if you see him. And we should do all of that. We should do all of that, you know, to the T, inshallah. But the fact of the matter is that these are goals that we that perfection, these goals of perfection, or if we perceive these goals as perfection, they're unattainable as human beings. We have to, we have to realize that it's okay to, to make mistakes. We, we, we can still love ourselves despite our shortcomings. So this is the first really major point that we want to make, to liberate ourselves from this notion of perfection, to take this weight off of our shoulders, to embrace our humanness. Allah does not put a burden on any person, does not put a burden on Khalid or Nuruddin or, or Abdul Rahman, that is bigger than Khalid Nuruddin or Abdul Rahman or Aisha or anybody that they can bear. Never. And we can't bear the standard of perfection. It's, it's humanly impossible. We have to understand this on a personal level and on a community level. We need to be better as a community in handling mistakes, in not ostracizing people for it, in accepting them and supporting them in their time of need because we're human. We're going to fall short. It's okay. And not only is it okay, it's expected. It is expected. And the second major point we want to make is that this look of accepting our humanness, of accepting the fact that we are going to make mistakes, 
of being the best Muslims that we can be, but still knowing in the back of our head that, you know, I'm going to fall short. I'm going to try my best, but I'm going to fall short. I'm not going to kill myself over. I'm not going to destroy myself over. I'm not going to overwhelm myself with it. I'm going to know that, hey, listen, I'm human. This happens and it happened to me. I'm going to get back up. But that doesn't always look the same. There is no specific way that that looks. And the point that I'm really trying to make here is that there is no cookie cutter Muslim. There is no Muslim prototype, if you will. Now, obviously, within the confines of what God has made permissible and not permissible, and what we learn through the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you know, I'm not talking about outside of that, within that, right? There, there's no specific way that your identity has to be molded. It doesn't have to confound to a certain prototype in our minds or our community's minds that's deemed quote unquote Islamic. And if you look at the companions of the Prophet وسلم, and you look at the people that were around the Prophet and for that matter, if you look at just, you know, very well-known Muslims in our time and from the Prophet's time until our time, you'll find that, you know, there's this, there's this spectrum of personalities and it's not all one type. You have your Umar bin Khattab's who, you know, at least before he became the Khalifa was, you know, he was a tough guy. His solution to things were, you know, very stringent, very tough. And you have Abu Huraira. You have a man who was, his name is literally, you know, nobody knows him by his real name, Abdurrahman ibn Sakhr al-Dawsi. We know him as Abu Huraira because his whole persona was surrounded around his love for his cat. Do you know what I'm saying? Nobody said, oh my gosh, this guy loves cats. He can't be a companion. Or another companion who was funny, or Hassan ibn Thabit, who was more inclined towards the arts. Nobody said, oh, you don't fit the Islamic prototype. You know, you're, that's ridiculous. Get out of here. There is no Islamic prototype. You know, and this is this is very important uh, for us, especially in these communities in Canada and the U.S., because a lot of times what happens is even if it's sometimes not consciously, but subconsciously, there are these expectations. OK, you know, you got to do A, B, C and D. And if you don't, then I'm not going to say you're a failure per se, but, you know, you're going to be treated in these communities as such. And that is to say that. If you're not a doctor, if you don't go into engineering, um, if you don't, you know, love memorizing Quran, if you don't, you know, pray every salah in the masjid, if you don't grow your beard a certain length, if you don't dress a certain way. And again, I want to remind my, you and myself that this is all within the confines of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says is haram and not haram. But, you know, there's a lot of leeway there, right? So if you don't fit this mold, then you're not Muslim. That's really, I mean, even again, if it's not conscious, it's a lot of times subconscious. But that is entirely the antithesis of the community the Prophet ﷺ lived in. So you have people who are more inclined towards arts. You have your Hassan and Thabits. And you have your people who are more inclined towards math and science or who are just more that type of personality, more rigid. And both of them were, were amazing in their own way. There is no Muslim prototype. There is no quote-unquote Islamic prototype. And then lastly in accepting our imperfections, in our learning to become resilient, in our accepting the fact that, hey, listen, I'm amazing the way that I am. I don't have to pretend to be this way or that way. In doing that, it's sometimes, despite all of this, and despite doing all of this, keeping all of this in mind, we will or may have already run into circumstances where we feel sadness.
where we feel anger, where we feel low self-esteem, where we feel crippling anxiety, where we have tendencies of addiction, where we feel you know, this unrelenting irritability. And sometimes this affects our relationships, this affects our studies, this affects our work, this affects our relationships with our family, with our coworkers, with our colleagues. And sometimes it's circumstantial. Sometimes it's entirely idiopathic, as they say in medicine. There's no rhyme or reason. It just comes on. Sometimes it happens when we're young. And a lot of times it does happen around the age of 20. But again, a lot of times it happens even younger than that or even older than that. We must. And this is so important, guys, that we, we really have to have conviction that these conditions don't make us worse Muslims. We must know that this topic is, is not taboo, but God makes it a point to bring it up over and over again if we just listen. God gives us the tool to address these conditions. Allah gives us the tools to cope if we just break out of that malignant narrative that these issues don't exist in our communities and we just open our ears and listen. The Prophet ﷺ, and this may be a story that you're all familiar with, when he first received revelation ﷺ, I mean, a lot of us might be familiar with the story. He went to the cave of Hira and he sat there in seclusion. And, you know, put yourself in the Prophet's shoes. He's going there. He's sitting in this cave. It's, it's, it's dark. It's at night. All you can see is maybe some fires lit in the city down below in Mecca. But otherwise, you're by yourself, doing your thing. You're vibing, as they would say. All right? And then... Out of nowhere, this, for all he knows, it's a creature. He doesn't know it's Jibreel at this point, alayhi salam. He doesn't know it's the angel Jibreel. Comes out of nowhere and hugs the Prophet and he tells him, read. The Prophet is terrified. I, I, I don't know how to read. Read. I don't know how to read. Read. And then Jibreel, alayhi salam, we, we may know how the story goes. But the point is, is this, this was a relatively traumatic uh, event in the life of the Prophet This was an event that caused, and albeit you can say this was circumstantial, but nonetheless, it caused a significant amount of anxiety in the Prophet wasallam, And he couldn't handle, you know, or he couldn't really understand, I think is a better way of saying it, what was happening at the time. So he ran and he ran and he was he was scared. He was anxious, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he ran, where did he run? He ran to his wife, Khadija, radiallahu anha, and he said, Zamiluni, Dathiruni, cover me up. Cover me up in this in this cloak. I just I just want to be covered. I just want the security of a blanket. Prophet was scared. He was anxious. He didn't know what was going on. Khadija radiallahu anha said, and Prophet actually explicitly said, I am worried about myself. I am worried. I'm worried that there is something wrong with me. Am, am I going mad? Is something happening? I don't know what's happening. I can't explain it. And Khadija radiallahu anha. And her beautiful calmness said, Wallahi la Allahu abada, innaka la tasilul rahim, wa tastukul hadith, wa tahmilul kal, wa tukudil daif, wa tu'inu ala nawaib al haq. Allah, don't worry, God's never going to let you down. You are a good person. She's saying this to Prophet, you are a good person. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to take care of you. You take care of people. You are good. You are genuinely good. Allah is not going to let you down. 
And she took him وسلم, to her cousin who was a Christian monk, Waraqa bin Nawfal. And she told him about what had happened. And Waraqa bin Nawfal, after hearing what happened to the Prophet وسلم, said, essentially, this is the same angel that came to Isa, that came to Jesus, peace and blessings be upon him, that came to Moses, peace and blessings be upon him. And that he is coming to you and that you are the messenger of God. And that I wish, and he was an old man at the time, Waraka was an old man. He said, I wish I was old enough so that I can defend you when your people kick you out of your town and fight you for what it is that you have to say and bring. And so the Prophet ﷺ, slowly but surely his anxiety you know, started to wane. But Prophet ﷺ, still, again, this was just the first revelation. What we don't hear very often is that there was a time span of about six months after this initial revelation where there was a pause. There was a pause in revelation. Nothing would come to the Prophet ﷺ. After there was a six month pause in revelation. And so this also weighed heavily on the Prophet this is This is the best man ever to walk this earth, having these feelings. And it's, there's a narration, and this isn't a popular narration, but it's in Al-Bukhari, which is one of the most you know, authentic books after the Quran, which is not a book, it's the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but nonetheless, we all know what Sahih Al-Bukhari is. And some people will dispute the authenticity of what's said in this hadith, but it's in Al-Bukhari, it's in our Islamic history. It's something that I think is beneficial to hear, and I don't think we should brush it under the rug. The companion who narrates this hadith about the beginning of Revelation says that he heard other narrations that would say that during this pause, during this six-month pause, the Prophet ﷺ grew so sad and so anxious that when he would be walking on the mountaintops near Mecca, there are some mountains, he'd be walking on these high paths that he would think to himself, if only I could throw myself off of this mountain because he was so sad that he thought maybe something was wrong with him, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I, I you could only imagine what was going through the head of the Prophet but maybe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down the revelation and now you know there's a pause, did I do something wrong? So many, a myriad of emotions that could exist. The point is, is that there was this profound sadness and anxiety in the Prophet to the point where this uh, tabi'i who was narrating this hadith from Aisha says that some narrations have reached us where the Prophet says that he, he, he was so sad that he would think about throwing himself off of the mountain sallallahu alayhi wa sallam but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would send Jibreel to remind him in those moments and he would explicitly hear Jibreel alayhi salam saying that you are the messenger of God and he would calm down and he would calm down and his anxiety would wane. And if we think about this, this is this is profound. If we think about the ayahs that we recited initially about Maryam alayhi salam, when she was also beset with an affliction, she was a noble person in her community and now she's pregnant. What is she gonna, she wasn't married, you know, what are people gonna assume? People are gonna assume very negative things about her. There was this anxiety. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us about this story in the story of Maryam when he says subhanahu wa ta'ala, قَدْ جَعَلَ رَبُّكِ تَحْتَكِ سَرِيًّا 
وهزي إليك بجذع النخلة تساقط عليك رطبا جنيا We talked about the best man, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and now we're talking about the best woman, alayhi salam, Maryam. She's quoted in the Quran until the end of time, saying that I wish I had died before this and was not even a thing worth mentioning. I wish people didn't even know about me. I'm so terrified for what's about to come that this is how I'm feeling. This was the greatest woman to ever walk the earth. Greater than you and me. The angels greeted her. The angels spoke to her directly. God sent her food without her even leaving her quarters. Her entire upbringing is documented in the Quran. Yet she endured public shaming and ridicule. And her greatest test, which made her wish that she was not even born, which made her wish I wish I was dead. You have Yaqub, Jacob, the father of Yusuf, the father of Yusuf, that when he is afflicted with his, with, with his calamity, which was a huge calamity, he loved his son so much. And then his son, you know, for all he knew, disappeared. He was told that he was killed, but Yaqub didn't believe it. But nonetheless, he was gone. He was out of his life. This was a big affliction for him. He cried so much that he went blind. What is this if, if, if it's not crippling depression? What is this if it's not crippling anxiety? So I'm here to tell you that not only are we not weaker or, or worse people or worse Muslims for having these feelings, but we are in amazing company. But we are in amazing company. We have to realize that this is part of our humanness. And we also have to realize through these parables that God is suggesting tools for us, coping mechanisms, solutions in these examples. And never in any of these examples, we brought examples from the story of the life of the Prophet from the Quran itself, from the Hadith. In none of these can we possibly conclude as a person or as a community that this issue should be brushed under the rug. We need to pretend that this problem is not there. We have to just let these issues fester. Quite the contrary. God is telling us, these are problems. These are real. You are human. We are facing these problems. We have to face them. And these are some solutions. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in each of these scenarios that we mentioned, in each of these stories, the number one thing that he says or that he mentions is some level of communication. When the Prophet sallallahu was feeling sad after what happened to him in that cave, he ran to his wife. And what did she do? She talked him through it. Actually, what she did, even clinically, you know, a lot of times right now in the psychiatry world, one of the most effective things, and sometimes it's even more effective clinically, and there have been studies to show this than antidepressants, is, is something called cognitive behavioral therapy. And a lot of it is based around communication. And the most important part of that part of, of that communication is making sure you communicate with somebody you trust, whether that is a trained health professional or a loved one, but communication. That's one of the most essential and cardinal things. And in each of these examples, Asr Tanzara is showing us exactly that. 
The Prophet where did, when he ran down from the mountain, where did he go? He went to Khadijah and he was still feeling anxious. He was still feeling down. He was still not knowing what was going on. And Khadijah walked him through essentially what was cognitive behavioral therapy. She was taking his negative thoughts, which was, what's wrong with me? Am I, is something happening to me? Am I going crazy? Is something bad happening to me? And she was walking him through why that can't be possible. She was taking each thought and saying, well, no, you know, that's actually very far-fetched because you're an amazing person. God will never do that to you. That is exactly cognitive behavioral therapy. Taking your thoughts in these pervasive thoughts that we have that are negative, walking through them step by step, and it's extremely effective. It has to, it's not just a one-time session. These are things that we partake in over time, but this is exactly what happened with the Prophet Khadija. It's unbelievable, actually. We have Maryam when she said what she said, when she was at that tree and she was nervous and she was anxious and she was going to be ridiculed and she was invented by her people. What happened? What's the first thing after she said that I wish I were dead? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says immediately almost after. It says, فَنَادَاهَا He called on to her. Communication. Communication. Don't worry. You will be okay. Let's walk through this. Let's work through this. Let's seek help. So if you or I, if we are having changes in our sleep, we can't fall asleep. We spend too much time sleeping. If we lose interest in the things that we normally are interested in, if we have these feelings of guilt, of worthlessness, of anxiety, of devaluing ourselves, if we feel like we're lacking our energy. We're always fatigued. We're never really kind of, we don't have that, you know, hop in our step that we usually have. If we feel like we can't concentrate, concentrate. if we feel like, you know, cognitively, we can't really focus uh, on things like we used to be able to. If we have a decrease in our appetite, if we can't eat, if we're agitated, if we start to act out, and if we have these, these thoughts of, of self-harm, number one, know that we are not a bad person because of it. And rather that we are in amazing company. We are in the company of the best man and the best woman ever to walk this earth. And number two, and very importantly, don't let it fester. There are viable solutions. The most paramount of which is communication. And your brother Usaid, may Allah grant him Jannah for this, mashallah. Has he showed me a few links that you all have available on uh, the MIA website? There's a link to a mental health folder, and I wish somebody would share that either in the comments section or somewhere in the description of this video that you can access. And I've opened the link because I wanted to make sure I look through it. And there are a plethora, mashallah. You guys are at the, you guys are very progressive in this regard, and you should be honored to be from this community that has a plethora of health professionals that are just waiting for you to communicate with them. I implore you, I implore you, reach out to these people. Reach out to these people. Not only are there solutions, but there's nothing inherently, I don't want to say wrong with these feelings, but there's nothing inherently wrong with us being humans and having these conditions and having these feelings. We can't keep brushing them under the rug. We need to bring them to the forefront. We need to talk to people. We need to use every means necessary, every tool at our disposal. Number one, communication. But anything else that comes through that and with that to address these issues. And inshallah, inshallah, I have I have no doubt that your community will do uh, an amazing job in helping you address these issues. It's just a matter of reaching out. Please, please, please reach out. Uh,
والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته آخر دعوانا الحمد لله رب العالمين I said salams but I think we're opening up for questions now right uh, yes inshallah jazakallah khairan uh, that was that was a very 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 good speech alhamdulillah and I think you touched on very important you know very important topic about communication I think we can all take take from that and you know apply that into our lives uh, inshallah right now we'll start with the question segment so if you guys have any questions uh, please post them in the comments and we'll get to them inshallah uh, I have a question for for the time being so <clears throat> what advice would you give to youth on how to open the subject of mental health to their parents as you know you know talking about mental health especially with your parents can be very stressful you know not everybody knows how to open up that topic uh, and talk about it so what advice would you give to a youth that wants to open up or talk to it to their parents 100 percent uh you hit the nail on the head a lot of times it's taboo and so we don't end up talking about it i would say uh if our parents are religiously inclined or you know they maybe it's just a cultural thing I would I would emphasize these examples, uh, you know, in the Quran. Just say, hey, listen, Maryam السلام, who was the best woman, had these ideas and these thoughts, and the Prophet was sad. Yaqub went blind from his sadness. Like, you know, I, this is there's something wrong. I'm just not feeling right. I really need to talk to somebody. So uh, sometimes, even if you do that, maybe your parents won't take you seriously. I, in that case, I implore you to reach out to uh, Brother Usaid, for example, and the members in your community that uh, I'm confident will take it seriously. So I would say, uh, number one, uh, you know, tell your parents, you know, kind of, you can use these examples that we use today to let them know that, hey, it's not taboo. And not only is it not taboo, it's not healthy for it to be taboo, right? The Prophet had these feelings. He had to talk to Khadija. I have these feelings. I have to talk to somebody. I'm feeling down. I have to talk to somebody. And number two, uh, if you find that that is, you know, a door that's, you know, really not opening for you and they stay, you know, kind of keeping it in the realm of taboo, then, you know, don't, don't leave it there. Be persistent. Reach out to somebody in the community, whether it's Usaid or um, uh, one of the health professionals that's in the link. Um, you, I mean, you know your resources more than I do. But. Yeah, alhamdulillah, we have a very good, you know, mental health, uh, you know, program for the youth, alhamdulillah, in our, in our masjid. And I really advise anyone that struggles with these, you know, with these thoughts and uh, these feelings to really check it out. And it's a very safe, very safe space, especially for, you know, the kids in our community. And uh, I really urge you guys, if if you really are, you know, uh, feeling these thoughts, to check it out with the link that's posted in the comments, inshallah. Uh, I have one more question from uh, somebody from our community. Um, it's, as Muslims, uh, we, have, we have to fulfill the rights of our fellow brothers and sisters in Islam. But what can we do if fulfilling them has an effect on our mental health? For example, some people find it very stressful or very draining to check up on others, you know, talk to relatives or even visiting the sick, you know, stuff like that. So what, what, what advice would you, would you give to them? Uh, number one, I would say uh, you have to be real with yourself. You have to be honest, but compassionate at the same time. Right. I mean, if this is something that really, I mean, there's, so we have to distinguish between, you know, uh, anxiety and stress and clinical depression and clinical anxiety. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's stressful for me sometimes to reach out to family to call. I mean, I have work all day. You know, sometimes I forget to, oh man, I have to call my mom. Or I have to go with my dad to do this, or I have to, you know, go pick up my brother from here. You know, that's that's different. Okay, that's very circumstantial. Uh, you know, in life, you know, and here's the thing, and this is something very important that we also maybe didn't say uh, explicitly. Mm -hmm. This life as believers is a test, right? 
So like, we're never, there's never going to be a time where like, oh man, you know, hundred percent bliss, no stress, no anxiety. You know, you're in school, there's stress. You know, you're in a family, there's stress. You get married, there's stress. I'm not trying to paint a bleak picture. You can have fun. Yeah. I'm just saying, you know, yeah. some one way or another, stress and anxiety is going to be introduced uh, on certain levels, but it's, it is a spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. And if you fall on the far end of that spectrum, where it starts to lean into the more clinical, where it is really crippling and you can't do anything about it and it, you know, you it makes you have these pervasive thoughts, then that's the number one priority. You never want to enter a space or a situation where you know that those uh, thoughts and those ideas and those feelings are brought on by that circumstance. So if that's the case, then yes. But mm -hmm. again, be, you know, be real with yourself because you know, life, that's life. We're not, this isn't gender. Bliss is, you know, it's, it's, this life is temporary, man. Like, you know, it's, it, it, Couple more hours, couple more days. We're not nobody's gonna remember any of this anyways. Yeah. We're all gonna be in Jannah, just chilling, having fun. Nobody's, you know what I'm saying? That's where the bliss is. Okay. But in this life, you know, stressors do come up. But again, if these stressors come up and these uh, points of anxiety come up and they're a point of, of really crippling anxiety for you, then the priority is always to take care of of yourself, especially mm -hmm. in that circumstance. Yeah. And I also think like if you uh like put it on in say you're in someone else's shoes, right? I, yeah. for for me personally i would i would find it good for me if somebody checked up on me you know made 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 it seem like they cared about me so if you put in that mindset that oh since i would love for somebody to do it for me i will use that to do for someone else inshallah 100 percent. that's very important to um and and your friends and your brothers and sisters might drop hint might drop hints for you every now and then yeah uh, up on those hints and check check in on people um and even, you know, the, the, the idea of communication, besides if we're dealing with clinical depression or clinical anxiety, even if we're dealing with subclinical anxiety and subclinical depression and, and times of grief, it's always a good idea to talk. Talk to your, mm -hmm. for me, I like to talk to my sister, for example. She's a great um, resource and she's just real. I, you know, mm -hmm. we, we're both middle children, so we kind of grew up, you know, with each other. So she understands me very well. So I like to talk to her. It's, it helps take a lot of stress off my shoulders. Sometimes just talking about things just you know makes you know helps tremendously not sometimes a lot of, most of the time so yeah uh we have a question from suhad bakri uh basically uh suhad is asking if your child doesn't want to open up or even talk about his feelings what can you do as a parent to help them tips for parents that's that's a really really uh tough question uh brother uh suhad uh, bakri sister suhad sister suhad uh bakri uh my apologies that's yeah that's that's really tough and unfortunately i i i think what causes that is the fact that we make these ideas so i've dealt with you know uh you know in my work as a as a youth coordinator i've dealt with with youth you know that uh basically suffer because of the uh you know the stigmas that we put around this issue and they feel like okay you know i fell short of what i'm supposed to be and so i'm worthless and so on and so forth and you know there's no coming back from this and uh, so i think to answer that question it starts with destigmatizing this uh this um topic in our communities to have more talks like this to talk more openly about it number one um you know i, I think that's the most important thing it's it's preventative for what you're describing uh, as opposed to as opposed to reactionary uh, we kind of wait for you know somebody to slip up to say hey you know as opposed to just you know helping them you know walk upright in the first place by destigmatizing these issues so I think that's the number one most important thing but then you know despite that yes you will have times where you know it's 
you have, you run into individuals who don't want to open up um, and who don't want to talk about their feelings. Um, you know, one advice that I heard that I think has been beneficial, I've seen being, be beneficial um, in circumstances like that. And again, I'm talking anecdotally, I'm not talking evidence-based or from a medical perspective, but just what we've experienced in our community and other communities with similar circumstances is for these individuals, a lot of times when you, um, I don't wanna say force them, but you know, strongly encourage them to step outside of their comfort zone. Uh, for example, if you know their depression is so crippling that they don't wanna leave the house or they don't wanna see anybody, to just kind of twist their arm a little bit in terms of you know, coming out with you, coming on a walk or going on a nice vacation, going to, I don't know what's a vacation for you guys in Canada, Vancouver is beautiful, for example, or, or Banff or something, you know, and seeing the mountains. Um, it, it, it's oftentimes that these individuals might have what you call these aha moments that, hey, actually, you know, I can be happy. This is, you know, this is beautiful. You just have to, you know, increase the uh, circumstance or the, the the situations, the frequency of these situations. And inshallah, obviously that coupled with dua, a lot of copious dua and prayer and asking Allah. And inshallah, I mean, that's, that's inshallah will be beneficial for that individual. Inshallah, inshallah. I think we can all learn from that, alhamdulillah. Uh, I don't see any more uh, questions in the chat. So inshallah, I think we're around the one hour mark, which is perfect, alhamdulillah. Um, so jazakallah khairan once again for joining us. Uh, yeah. And for I think we all benefited from it. And inshallah, the people watching also benefited as much as we did. Uh, and inshallah, when things get better, we can invite you in person and we can plan something, you know, with the youth, whether it be a talk or a workshop or anything like that. So inshallah, that will happen. Uh, <clears throat> uh, so make sure to look out, just one more reminder, make sure to look out for other youth-run programs and youth plan programs. So tomorrow, inshallah, we have a special guest speaking uh, at 3 p.m. Uh, or we have the, uh, at 3 p.m. we have Suhaib Webb which is a very well-known and very, very, very special speaker that, alhamdulillah, we, we managed to get a hold of. And then also tomorrow from 5 to 7 p.m., we have the Avengers of Earth, uh, the Avengers of Earth Day. There's going to be a walk and uh, pick up garbage around the masjid and blue and, uh, and we advise you guys to wear blue and green. Uh, and I really advise if you guys can come to come because especially during Ramadan where our, uh, our hasanat are multiplied and our good deeds are, are, are multiplied. Uh, this is going to be a very, very important uh, thing to do. So inshallah, if you guys can attend, that would be great. Uh, and JazakAllah khair for attending again. Uh, Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh.